We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, Sally Sue is speaking with Matt Davis, who is a registered architect and studio director of Bates Smart in Sydney. Matt has run his own successful practice, Davis and & Davis, and has also worked in a strategic advisory capacity with the New South Wales Government Architect and the New South Wales State Design Review Panel. Matt and Sally discuss Matt's cyclical career journey in the architecture profession and what skills he developed along the way to best serve the variety of clients he has worked with over the years. Let's jump in. Welcome, Matt. Today we're on our new episode for our seasoned, upcoming season, Hearing Architecture. And it's been great for us to invite Matt Davis to join us on this season. Our overarching theme this time around is to explore the topic of the value of the architect, but with Matt, we'll be taking this topic much more further. So welcome, Matt. Thanks, Sally. Very happy to be here. It's great to have you, and I think I should start off by saying that I've had the pleasure of working with Matt in the past recent years, ever since I've joined Bates Smart, and it's great to see what Matt does in our studio and across all sorts of projects, and I believe he's got a very diverse background that makes today's topic very interesting. So, Matt, before we get into it and explore all of the great questions we have for you, can you tell us a bit about your non-linear career pathway and uh, what brings you back to Batesmart this time around? Yes, I sure can. So um, certainly non-linear. It's in fact a full loop because this is my second time at Batesmart. I worked here nearly well, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago uh, as a young graduate. And my course through architecture has really taken me from that traditional role in architecture through a period of working as a full-time academic, then into advisory roles with government agencies, the um, inaugural Integrated Design Commission in South Australia, through into government delivery agencies like Renewal SA, Urban Growth, Transport and so on, and then ultimately into my own little practice, Davis and Davis Architects in South Australia, before coming back to Bates Smart. And a little bit to unpick that a little bit, why I've kind of gone through that, my detour out of practice was in some ways a kind of frustration as a young, passionate architect and feeling that we were somewhat too far down the food chain to influence positive change. And perhaps a frustration with architecture being conceived as an object rather than part of a city or a system. And so my little circuitous journey was really about trying to swim upstream to where I saw the greatest opportunity for positive change. I'm not sure I got that right, but I thought that was through policy. So it sort of took me up into, into government. And then I realised it's probably politics, not policy. And I learned very quickly that everything is political and everything political is, is local. And by that, I mean that you can have the best policy in the world, but it often comes unstuck when it hits the ground in a local, local context. And we see that with the resistance of community to change and so on and so on, the NIMBYism and so on. And the sort of disconnect between big vision, big reform, ambitious policy, and sort of short-term political cycles. So that, in a sense, 
reinforced to me that perhaps I got my hypothesis wrong and that the projects, the delivery of tangible projects is actually an incredibly important part of driving systemic change. So they can be just objects, but they can in fact be part of influencing change. So that was the thing that sort of took me back into to practice initially with my own practice in South Australia, working much more in urban design and strategy, and then ultimately a recognition that in fact Bates Smart was a much better place for me to do that than a kind of small scale startup in, in Adelaide. So that was the catalyst for coming back, closing the loop back into the big projects. <laughs> Oh, that's a great story because not many people go back to where they come from. I mean, it's quite good to see you do that and I've had the benefit of enjoying your return. And and I think I'm picking that it's great to hear from you on how you've changed the way you've seen the profession now. We're able to say that it's benefited you in practice. I believe that it's given you a very good eye on what good design is now and the value of the architect in bringing that. If we were to explore that level a bit more, how did all those roles that you've had that participated at different levels help you unpick what's worth fighting for, what's worth absolutely preaching for to our clients, to all authorities and other bodies that we interface with? First thing I'd say is I learned to stop preaching to anybody. I think design evangelism doesn't get you very far and we've had a few goes at that and probably a few false starts. So what I really learned, which I think has helped me be a better designer and operate more effectively in a kind of commercial practice environment that we're in, is a greater understanding of the alternate perspectives of the other people involved in a project. So a greater level of empathy. Without that experience or with limited exposure to it, you can run into that trap of being the designer, incredibly invested in your own thinking, well-schooled, well-skilled, great ideas and find that resistance to the acceptance of those ideas and you sell it harder, you push it harder, you fight it harder, you don't get anywhere. And often it's not because of the intelligence of that thinking but sometimes it's because of the lack of understanding about where the other person's coming from. So what is it that's important to them? What is it that they're dealing with? What are the drivers? What are the obstacles that they haven't got across? And they don't always articulate them very well but certainly when you know in those various roles I've described I spent a lot of time sitting in rooms where I was the only person that was had design literacy or architectural expertise often in a kind of procurement panel you know tender evaluation and you just realize how I mean it's absolutely frightening how decisions are, are made and what are the things that other people are looking for as measures of what they think to be a good outcome so, you know, it's not a silver bullet, but I think just having a greater level of aware, awareness means you don't necessarily recut your thinking as the architect, but you think very carefully about how you present your argument, how you frame your argument, how you connect your ideas to the motivations of the authorities, the financer, the NIMBYs that might be opposing it, and try to play out the story that shows that you're delivering, delivering them some benefit, some value. So the measure of good design is then very different to perhaps how you might describe it in a purely sort of disciplinary way of good architecture, you know, well-mannered, 
well-proportioned, you know, contemporary use of this and that. Like there's a whole other set of parameters about what it might need to do to be considered good design in the eyes of those other people. Absolutely. And I think uh, to your point, summarising and unpacking it a bit, I think we're trying to, as a podcast, engage with a broader audience. And I think you almost touch on where sometimes in our profession it could be a bit more inward focused and we're often really good at talking to our peers and justifying for why we're bringing good design. And to your point, there's a larger, you know, kind of setup there where some of our stakeholders, some of our community members might not even have the language to communicate what they are opposed to or supporting. And I think what we have in the city and council and the government body that we work in, like the environment that we work in, is that we at least all agree that we need to provide civic benefits and that good design should be shared in the sense of public amenity and all the rest. So I think just looping back on that, then how do you normally fold that in into your design process, balancing the different good design definitions we're talking about here? It's a good question, Sally. I mean, I think I think you run two ledgers where you're doing things very explicitly. So again, you're looking very specifically at what are those various bodies, authorities, community groups, whatever, what are their motivations, what are their expectations? And you make sure that where you can, you piggyback off those and address them very explicitly. And so you can mount that or demonstrate that public benefit. I think there's a need to also work subversively and sneak in good stuff, whether you've been asked to or not. And sometimes, you know, it's the wolf in the sheep's clothes. It's it's dressing something up to provide a benefit that might be around, you know, just pick something, you know, a community's asking you for a park because they want somebody to kick a ball, but in fact you're using it as a device to advance thinking about ecosystems or connection to country or whatever, and you're doing it, you know, sub- subversively. You're just doing it because you know it to be a good good thing, whether it's being asked for or not. I think that there's, you know, it's sort of maybe a dumb, blunt example, but I think if you take that, I try to take that mentality or philosophy into all of the work that we do, I do, regardless of the scale. And there's just there's little decisions you can make within a project that can either be to the betterment of the project and detriment of the city or it can be um, neutral or it can be something that is a win-win for both. It can be about being mean or it can be generous and it doesn't always cost more to be generous. I think it can be an attitude about thinking outside of your boundary, thinking about the relationship of your project to the next thing to how it just supports the way a neighbourhood works or the the experience of um, a passerby or a moment of joy or beauty or these sort of intangible things. They're just small acts of generosity that we can kind of try to play out regardless of the project or, or the expectation of your client per se. That's very good to hear. And I think all of those details we're very familiar with and um, as an architect and, you know, as we shift through practice, sometimes we often um, may only ever refer to the brief and, you know, it might be so guided by the brief that we end up starting with just only numbers, yield efficiencies, that at times we may forget that's very important to fold in what you've just described, all of the contextual good design and that civic benefit for the greater good as well. And you touched on connecting with country, and I think 
that's a great topic and very topical this year. Maybe we can have you elaborate because from your perspective and the project examples that Imaya has been part of recently, on why it's so important to continue to talk about that as a process and who you've been able to engage with to gain that extra level of understanding because I think many of us listening might still be new because we maybe either haven't had the project opportunities or met all of these great advisors that we've been lucky to work with to even begin to have that conversation. But I think the appetite is there. Can we talk a little bit about briefs first? Oh, oh yeah. Um, it's a tangent <laughs> into the question of responding to country. Because, Excellent, okay. Because just winding back a few sentences, we respond to a brief. Yeah. We get terrible briefs in a broad sense within the, within our industry. Often we just, the, the brief, the thing that you're being asked to respond to is not asking the right question. It's a blunt question. It's a narrowly framed question. It's an insular question. It's incomplete. And to my point about often where decisions, the tables around which decisions are made and the influence of architects in non-traditional roles, you know, that's an area where there can be huge benefit that the point, and we all, we all know the greatest opportunity to influence positive change is the beginning of a, of a project cycle, not the further you go down, there's an opportunity cost. And so the framing of the question about what does this project need to provide is critical. And too often it's too blunt, too dumb, which is why you have to work subversively. So to connect this back to the question you actually asked, what's going on, what's so interesting about what's going on at the moment around connection to country, and we'll talk, maybe we'll contextualise what that means in a minute, is that we're being asked to deal with a different set of issues and priorities, fundamentally different issues and set, yeah. sets of priorities. So not everyone in, this, in, in this, this audience would have had the same exposure to what Connecting Country is about. It's fair to say that, you know, it is a specific policy in New South Wales that has a companion policy designed with country, and it's, it's something that, architects and designers in New South Wales are dealing with very explicitly and it is, to make a generalisation, um, much more advanced than, than most parts of the country. So that said, even within New South Wales, there's an incredible spectrum of awareness, experience, capability, and I'm super cautious to in my commentary around it because it's coming from an area of interest and some experience and support, but not from expertise. You know, like we're all finding our way, we're all finding our way into it. But what what I think is super interesting for us as a as a discipline is the recasting of the principles that are of importance and the responsibility to reframe our worldview to some extent to operate with a far higher level of knowledge and understanding and empathy towards um, a disadvantaged part of our society, First Nations people, and to unlearn a whole lot of things. One of my biggest people that know me know that I've threatened to write a book about all of the stupid urban design tropes that we live and die by about things that you have to do to make a good place, despite the evidence of how, in fact, you can do it many different ways and it might, in fact, be a better place. Um, so we live and die by a whole, whole lot of 
tropes which really reflect legacy of colonial thinking and modernist thinking. And here we're being asked to think about how, as a community of designers, we respond to a completely different worldview and relationship between peoples and a relationship between peoples and place and country. So it's a really tough space to be in as architects. We, you know, like some of us have been doing it for a while and it's been, you know, 20 odd years of honing that expertise and you become more entrenched in your ways the longer you do it. And in the last five years, we've had a tap on the shoulder and said, no, no, you got to think about this other stuff as well. So it's, I mean, I, I personally find it incredibly refreshing and inspiring and energizing. It's also very daunting. I mean, the process, there's a whole policy there that listeners can tap into and, and look at the steps and the government architect, GA New South Wales, is with their First Nations partners have put together a really great framework that describes the steps and the obligations and the, the considerations. But in principle, it's a process that requires deep engagement with First Nations people prior to, during, and through the life cycle of a design and development project. It requires a level of divestment of control through empowerment, participation, co-design, in various ways and various scales. And that's fantastic in that it opens up a set of possibilities. I mean, it's a bit like the, the closest analogy I can, or, or, or parallel I can come up with is in terms of giving you license to think about architecture differently beyond the kind of blunt commercial pressures of I need this much and that much and these are the planning rules and whatever, is the emphasis on this kind of first wave of sustainability 20 years ago around you know, the emergence of the Green Building Council and so on, where, in fact, even the ADG, where it was, you not only had a, a license to prosecute and defend issues around amenity or sustainability, you actually had a you actually had a regulatory obligation to do so. And so I think what's interesting in New South Wales is exactly that. So you can now talk about things, but you have to talk about things that you've really been prevented from even recognising, let alone, or, or at best were considered secondary considerations. So there's, you know, you, you're talking in a master plan project now about environmental considerations, so, you know, water flows and so on, but also actually about patterns of fauna, the way it Fauna occupies a site or the way, the kind of different dimensions of seasonality. So beyond do you get two hours of sun to something, it's what are the six seasons and the patterns of, of, of climate, of landscape, of cultural practice and so on. So it's just a completely different suite of things. It also, and I think this is probably one of the most compelling and interesting opportunities, is that First Nations people care for um principle of caring for country is aligned, it's not the same as, but it's very well aligned with principles of, of generative design and sustainability, beyond sustainability. So that's really powerful then if you can bring those things together and, and strengthen the two things. Um, so my, I mean, my experience, I've been very fortunate to work with a number of First Nations design and social change consultants in our design projects. I mean, the personal benefit is that I've learned so much about a culture that I've been ignorant 
about for so long, like much of Australia, which is terrible that it's taken this long, but it's been it's personally a very, really great experience. And I think my observation is that it has disrupted our practice, you know, our projects here in a really positive sense, like for all the reasons I've described. It's, it's made us approach things, challenge our, our entrenched views and approach things really differently. All of that said and done, I do worry about it. It's for a number of reasons. I think in a way social change is a really difficult thing. Do you do you nudge things gently and hope for this sort of slow incremental build-up or do you leap out, launch with a really ambitious reform and then hope people catch up? And I think that in New South Wales we've leapt, we've leapt boldly into this brave new paradigm and it's a leap of faith from First Nations people in a way to kind of invite us to, to do it, but we're rapidly upskilling, you know, we're rapidly upskilling. And it's, I think it's going to take, from my non-Indigenous perspective, I would say it's a, it's, you know, it's a generation of catching up of like much more confidence in the kids coming out of uni now will be well prepared to think about this more naturally, intrinsically as part of their architecture education than what I am. So it's going to take a lot of time. There's an incredible imposition or, or responsibility that sits on, not an imposition, responsibility that sits on those First Nations design consultants. There's not that many of them, hugely in demand, very generous with their, their contributions, but they're stretched. The traditional owners, knowledge holders, communities are all incredibly stretched as well, huge demands on their time. And then the other thing that worries me about it a little bit, and this is all this all goes to how we need to operate and with a level of care and caution, I think, is that there is a risk that it plays out as something that becomes of how does this benefit my practice, my projects. The intent of it should be about how can our practice and projects acknowledge and benefit First Nations people. So we need to be really careful about how we operate. If we find ourselves operating in an environment, it's my personal perspective, if we find ourselves operating in an environment where for whatever reason we don't have the benefit of that First Nations input, I think we've got to be careful that we don't overstate or overreach with how we're responding. I think if we focus on the principle of care for country, we can't do, we can do good if we give too much attention to kind of contriving a response to cultural identity, I think we risk going into cultural areas of cultural appropriation. And it's more about how's our architecture benefiting from borrowing from First Nations mm -hmm. culture rather than actually delivering benefit for First Nations people. So I think, I don't know, I'm sort of making it up as I go and trying to learn as much as I can, read widely, talk widely, you know, talk widely, get to know First Nations people, like just make some effort to get on country, like make some effort to, to do it. But also I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. I think that some of my anxiety about that question of reciprocity and benefit gave cause to reflect on our role in this year of the referendum that has just passed. And it certainly pushed me and Bates Smart to focus our energy this year on our role in advocating for the voice, um, which ultimately didn't play out the way we thought it should and that the way the majority of First Nations people wanted. But, you know, my point 
to design and connect to the country, we've been, in a sense, invited, invited into work with First Nations people on their projects in the same way that the Uluru State from the heart invited Australian society to work together to do something better. It reminded me that as design professionals in the design community, we do have a significant sphere of influence. We do have the opportunity to affect positive change and do have a role to be advocates. So I was really, despite the result of the referendum, I was heartened that the design profession uh, and many of our contemporaries put their heads above the rampart and demonstrated public support in an area that's not, you know, core business. So I, I think that was a really positive thing and it, it reinforced the, the breadth of the contribution that architecture and design community can play. Absolutely. I think that's really, really, really good to hear. And I think I most enjoyed how humble you speak about it because I think it's a very sensitive topic. My personal experience also puts me in a place where at times I'm cautious to participate, but that doesn't mean I don't have the appetite ego. And I've been fortunate enough, similar to you, to be able to work in this sphere, not just in, let's say, design of building, but in public art, in the urban design and landscape, and even throwing in functions and programs that we might be able to embed within our projects as a proposal and start, because I think it was great to hear you describe because every architect, like you said, we start off with a project with a brief and this brief is written by the client. But the briefs through the years I've seen have also evolved, which is quite good to see. They do embed an appetite based on their company values at times, could be corporate client briefs or, you know, might be private investors that are all responding to what the community is asking for. And I think if I'm to tease out what you've just touched on and begin to let's frame it in a way that we're looking forward. It's it's a very positive one. Like you said, the greatest benefit is that we now talk about it widely. It's not something that we would be like, it's not an option. We don't just say, yes, maybe we'll have it on this project or not, particularly the big community, sorry, community projects or projects that affect larger communities. Because we're looping back to good design and what we contribute as architects, the value of the architect, it's great to kind of synthesise how you touched on the ADG that's been around for a bit more longer and for everyone that's the apartment design guide with its different names in its previous versions to the good design guides that the government architect team releases and that includes the connected with country, designing with country guidelines, um, what good design looks like, to, to now having environmental, um, sorry, sustainability criteria and goals that is almost non-negotiable, that's part of the process. And I think you touched on where maybe I'm interpreting it, that the guidelines are there to lift the minimum, including connecting with the country, to really begin that basic kind of engagement. But is it likely that these new minimums become the maximum or the only way to do things? And I guess I'm putting this in the context of some local governments and based on the current climate, design excellence is something that's almost non-negotiable and to kind of commit to that, projects are being realised through the competition process. And with that, we're searching for design excellence in the name of itself. And there's always a debate whether we follow brief to win it and get as many ticks as we can based on project criteria. What are the chances of architects now re-looking at the brief and taking a gamble on how they approach it in order to meet design criteria rather than just the mandatory outcomes? And I'm 
I'm not sure if I'm being clear here, but there's a way to, almost like the BCA, there's a way to be deemed to satisfy, but that performance solution becomes harder and harder if you're not willing to gamble a project or risk having it not achieve your client's brief and so on. And I think it's much easier to just follow what you've been asked to do and attempt to do that because I think housing is a topical kind of subject this year as well compared to what we just talked about. There is a crisis. As architects, we can continue to provide good design um, to hope to you know, make what's out there a better product, an object, as you described, but many of the products out there may eventually just look like ABD products. And I wondered if we can tease out your personal experience with different types of multi-res that you've worked on, how that has evolved through the years and whether you see opportunities for that to further refine. Noting that I believe this set is being revised and is always contentious about what we want to fold in as mandatory criteria so that we can continue to lift the high standard, at least the good in our design as we progress through the upcoming years. Not giving that up to solve housing prices and also making sure that we can cover on both sides, yeah. It's a bit in that, Sally. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll just pick out the design comp thing for a minute and then, you know, City of Sydney has, has an exceptional design excellence competition framework and I think undoubtedly it has delivered really great design quality. I think it has an incredibly important role in securing design quality, which ultimately benefits the public. Like it, it's a process that has a certain rigour to it that, that locks away good, good design. I mean, I would observe that there's probably a bit of catching up. It's a mechanism that should evolve with the time. So having just talked about the primacy we're giving connection country, I'd, I'd note that the City of Sydney's LEP design excellence provisions or criteria that are indicators of design excellence make no reference yet to country. They're kind of still those perhaps legacy principles. So that said, the City has been incredible, I think, with using their mechanism proactively to guide shift their value or shift the principles towards the values of importance to the city. So the emphasis on sustainability, their their role in nurturing emerging architects, their uh, requirement to ensure that competitions promote gender equality within participating practices. There's fantastic stuff. That said, when you look at what's going on across Australia, it, that's the exception, not, not the norm. So the majority of our of, of the buildings being built across Australia are probably not of the, they're not really of, of the scale or value that can justify the expense that goes into supporting that system. And it's about supporting it from the authority side as well as from the developer side as well as from the profession side. So you can't have a competition run on every project we do in Australia. And if you look at the systemic challenges, and we'll talk about housing, like there is a massive housing crisis in Australia. There's a disconnect between the housing provision and the population growth and immigration just at a generic level. And then there's an acute problem around housing affordability and equity, uh, the kind of social equity dimension to that. So did I hear that we need 1.2 million in about, um, social housing dwellings in about in the next five years, whatever, like way beyond anything we've ever delivered? So... To that end, you know, and I would acknowledge, I think, something like the uh, SEP 65 
apartment design guidelines, so on and so on, have played the role that they need to play, which was to stem the tide of terrible substandard residential developments in New South Wales and lift the bar up to a very good a good standard. I, that said, I s- sometimes wonder when you are, you know, debating with a planning officer about whether you've got your 1.5 metres of road or your 8 square metres of balcony, whether in the scheme of things a militant adherence to those criteria is serving Australian society well. And so that's where the question around how do you better, how do you protect, and it is about protecting society from the worst outcomes because there's an incredible legacy of terrible buildings with not necessarily design deficiencies but structural deficiencies as well, you know, or leaking, terrible buildings, buildings with poor amenity, all of that kind of stuff. So we do have to protect consumers because we like consumers from the worst. But then how does that serve a 20-year-old leaving home who can't afford a house? How does that serve an immigrant family arriving in Australia who can't afford a house? How does that serve an elderly, you know, biggest demographic in Australia emerging is the elderly single woman living alone? How does our housing stock in Australia support the needs of those people? And... There's so much that restricts it and policy around tax law that, you know, is a disincentive to downsizing, all of this stuff. But you wonder then in the area that we have greatest agency in the design of buildings and delivery of buildings and securing approvals for our clients, how you can have a system that both, both protects the worst and enables innovation or alternative approaches, recognising that, you know, there is a degree of consumer choice so not everyone. Maybe maybe there are people out there that say, I'm happy, to, I don't need a balcony, I would rather have, you know, a study or I don't need my 1.5 metres of robe in every bedroom because I've got a story or whatever, I don't know, you know, like mm. allow people to make choices. There are people living in apartments around the world that wouldn't go close to meeting AEG and they're bloody happy because of the quality of their life beyond their 74 square metres that they live in, it's what does the building offer them, what does the block offer them, what does the street offer them, what does the neighbourhood offer them, what does the city offer them. And so there's got to be a bit more flexibility. I think the analogy of the, the example of, you know, an NCC with a deemed to comply and a performance solution, that exists out there in some of our planning systems. The work we did in South Australia, I think, was very good at framing up those two approaches and putting in place, it's not flawless, but putting in place some mechanisms to enable the performance solution to give progressive certainty and not just become a higher degree of risk for the developer or the proponent. So in the city of Adelaide, that was the performance solution in a way on certain sites, catalyst sites, so on was coupled with a really good proactive case management and design review process designed not to police the adherence to the rules, but to promote good outcomes through these alternative approaches and progress, give progressive certainty. So you go along, 
the early indicators are that you're, it's a bit of an amber clay and you'll know pretty quickly. But done well, it enables you to pursue things that are a little bit different with a degree of confidence and support. So it can fuel some innovation. So I think, I think as a nation, which of course operates at different levels of government, different levels of planning authorities, we do have to have a look at ways in which, particularly around housing, we can create opportunities to deliver good housing quickly. I don't think in housing we have a national agenda, should have a national agenda for design excellence. I think we should have a national agenda to deliver good, equitable housing. There's always room for design excellence, I think, but the core problem here needs a different way of thinking. It needs a different way of thinking about, I mean, the measure of excellence. Like, it's not about the artful crafting of a facade detail in housing. It's how livable is it? How's it going to support you through the different parts of your life? How's it going to provide an affordable way to live? Not just an affordable house to buy. How's it going to be good for the planet? You know, it's a different measure, some of which is captured in the ADG, but it's a different level of, of emphasis. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And I think um, as we head towards the end of our episode and to keep it very lighthearted on the theme of good design and on the theme of engaging with a very, very wide audience, We've seen you become an ambassador for good design. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about your role and exactly what you did, but I'm going to play on that word and that title. How do you have a discussion about good design with your non-architectural friends, family, and the rest, the cohort? Because I think we can talk to architects and maybe that conversation will be similar to what we just talked about. But I'm interested to hear, you know, as a, you know, a lighthearted question, <laughs> to show a bit more of, you know, you. What kind of conversations do you have when it gets to this topic? Understandably, you have a family of two architects already, so maybe it's hard to deviate from that. But maybe beyond that, you know, when you're a Christmas family gathering, hopefully not too many architects show up. Yeah, my family, we try and avoid talking about uh, politics, immigration, and architecture. Um, no, no, but look, I think in talking about what is good design, you sh- regardless of your audience, you should talk about it like you're talking to your mother or a five-year-old. Um, if you can't articulate it in, in layman's terms, then you're probably obfuscating and using architectural jargon like I just did there. Um, you've just, I mean, it forces you to go back to the principles of is it, why is it, why do you think it's good? And you will find if you go down that path that sometimes you just agree to disagree. There's a matter of taste that comes into it around an aesthetic judgment, but you can you can just then ground it in some pretty fundamental principles. Does it work well? Does it do what it needs to do? Does it do a bit more? Does it um, relate well to its Context, and I mean that not necessarily even in the physical sense. But is it neighbourly? Um, does it does it work as part of a you know scalable system? 
the room, the part of the house, you know, the furniture, the part of the room, the room, the part of the house, the house, the part of the, as it work on a number of different levels. I think it's, I find it quite easy to talk about housing with family. Everyone's got a lived experience of home and, you know, so there's a, there's a kind of common, common ground. There's other things to talk about. (laughs) No, excellent. I think uh, that brings us to the end. And thanks, Matt, for joining us today. It's been great to hear you talk about everything you did. And I think really, I think if anything, we've, you know, definitely explored the topic of the value of the architect and uh, you've convinced me (laughs) that we need an architect in our projects and our lives. Um, But yeah, so thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you, Sally. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest interviewer, Sally Sue, and thank you also to our guest, registered architect and studio director at Bates Smart, Matt Davis. It was so great to hear about your career journey. We can't wait to see what you and the team at Bates Smart deliver next. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Sally Sue and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.